Hey everybody, welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with a background in international relations and security policy, and having also worked in the U.S. domestic political space for a while and having lived in a number of countries outside of the States, I feel like I'm well positioned to interpret for folks living outside the country just what's going on inside the U.S. Uh, and to shed some light for people back home on some events of importance going on outside of the country. So I probably shouldn't be doing an episode right now because, as you can probably hear, I'm sick. <laughs> that being said, it's been a little while. First I was traveling, then I got back, took way too long planning, and then got sick, decided to wait till I got better, didn't. There are just too many things going on right now that I feel that I should be commenting on to wait, especially with the U.S. midterm elections coming up this next week. So, remember a couple of months back when I started kind of bringing back this podcast and did an episode where I described being uncharacteristically optimistic about the way the world's going? (laughs) Yeah, that's over now. There are a million reasons to be not optimistic right now, ranging from Ukraine to the election results in a few other of the world's important democracies than the United States to the midterms coming up in the United States. I still haven't decided which exactly of these things I'll talk about today could end up being all of them. Um, I often frame these episodes as whether the news is good or bad right now for democracy generally, and right now, well, it's bad. So first, Ukraine. Um, So coming out of Ukraine, there's good news and bad news. The good news is that the Ukrainian military keeps performing very well and taking back territory that the Russians had captured and begun to colonize. It looks like Kherson, a very important city in Ukraine's uh, southeast, which was one of Russia's few early successes in the war, may actually soon fall back into the hands of the Ukrainians. The less good news is that winter is coming, which means things are likely to kind of freeze in place, which benefits the side that doesn't have the momentum right now, i.e. the Russians. The worst news is that, true to form, the way the Russians have responded to being repeatedly ejected from territories they've brutally taken over from the Ukrainians has been to do basically exactly what Hitler did to the UK after being pushed back in Europe later in World War II. That is to say, launch an air campaign against Ukraine civilians. Now, if I were to translate Putin's strategic decision-making to just launch terror attacks on civilians into plain language, I'd say something to the effect of, well, okay, our soldiers may be a pathetic, incompetent, poorly equipped, ragtag band of untrained lowlifes too distracted by raping civilians and stealing household appliances to effectively fight our illegal war, but we can still launch rockets and drones the Iranians gave us, because, you know, we're a superpower that should be feared and respected, uh, at the civilian population and infrastructure. Now, Setting aside the fact that this strategy is a pretty blatant violation of international laws and the laws of war, again, showing that Russia simply cannot ever be trusted with an agreement that is incredibly backed up with deadly force, this is very bad for the people of Ukraine. That country isn't exactly a tropical paradise, and as I mentioned, winter is coming, and millions of civilians being both under random air attack and also not having electricity and heating when the temperature starts getting down around zero, you know, both in Fahrenheit and Celsius, it's, well, it's bad. Moving a little bit further south, Israel had an election the other day, which I have to admit kind of snuck up on me. By way of context, for the last year and a half or so, Israel has been ruled by a very ideologically broad coalition government um, with a 
very far right and then fairly normal person basically trading off as the prime minister, uh, backed by a parliamentary majority that included for the first time one of the Arab-Israeli parties. This government had managed to kind of make the trains run on time and keep Israel functioning without doing anything particularly big or crazy. This has been in a stark contrast to the decade or so before in which Israel was run by Benjamin Netanyahu. Benjamin Netanyahu is is one of the worst people in politics in any democratic country in the world. He is the man in modern times on the Israel side, most responsible for undermining the peace process. Now, I say on the Israel side because, to be fair, there really isn't a partner for peace on the Palestinian side right now. Of the two primary Palestinian groups, one is a jihadist organization bent on the extermination of Israel and Jews more generally. And the more reasonable group, the Palestinian Authority, is led by a Holocaust denier. So, well, that's a longer conversation for another day. But suffice it to say here that Benjamin Netanyahu has also done a lot to undermine any potential peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. He also basically functions as a Republican operative in American politics. I've heard Israelis actually refer to him as the Republican senator from the great state of Israel. Also, he's done a number of sort of creepy authoritarian things to, like, consolidate media in support of his Likud party and is very, very credibly accused of massive corruption and is under investigation for it right now. Investigations which he would be able to then scuttle as prime minister. It's like if Trump was about to be on trial for his myriad of crimes and then suddenly and unexpectedly became president again, was able to pardon himself and then fire everyone at the Justice Department involved in his prosecution. That is basically what's happening right now in Israel. This is also very scary because Benjamin Netanyahu is a man who would burn the state of Israel and the entire Middle East to the ground if he felt that it would benefit him personally. Like, this means dire implications not just for the stagnant peace process between the Israelis and the Palestinians, but possibly more broadly, including the situation in Iran, which I keep hinting at plenty to talk about. I promise you I will make some form of that conversation happen. Um, I don't see this as a very likely scenario, but if Netanyahu as prime minister uh, needed a distraction, a great option in the past has been to ratchet up tensions with the Iranians. Now, to be fair, in this particular moment, this could also be exacerbated by the fact that, as U.S. intelligence is now reporting, the Russians may be helping the Iranians to speed up their nuclear program, uh, which opens a whole additional conversation about just how rotten Russia is in this current moment and how dangerous that is. Um, but again, I'll save that one for another day as well. Bottom line, any sort of flashpoint between Israel and Iran would almost certainly damage the historic protests against the current Iranian government by women and men, but especially women who are tired of living under a vicious Islamist theocracy. Moving now way further west, Brazil. Brazil also just had an election. The headline's good. Jair Bolsonaro, the pretty openly fascist president of that country, lost. The problem is, if you make it, like, just past the headline, he, like, barely lost. We spent the last year down, like, 15 points in the polls. Which makes sense, because besides being, again, a fascist, hundreds of thousands of Brazilians, who would probably be alive now if somebody competent were president during COVID, 
are dead because Bolsonaro bungled the pandemic response possibly even worse than Donald Trump. But despite trailing by double digits all year, he lost only by like half a percentage point, and his people totally crushed it in the legislative elections, which means that there's a very real chance that in the immediate future, there will be some sort of January 6th type scenario in Brazil, which is more likely to work there than in the United States, since Brazil was a military dictatorship less than half a century ago, and Bolsonaro, A, pretty openly fantasizes about the times of the military junta, and B, has done quite a lot of stuff to cozy up to the military, so stay tuned. Also, as a side note, Lula, the former Brazilian president who now just came back to beat Bolsonaro, is himself likely to be a huge pain in the ass in terms of Brazil's foreign policy. He's made... A few really deeply stupid both sidesy comments about the Ukraine situation during the campaign, and I'm really tempted to go off here on his previous tendency to obnoxiously cozy up to various vicious authoritarian governments in a weird attempt to appoint himself as some sort of go-between, standing between the democratic world and its adversaries, but my throat hurts and I just had to pause recording a second ago to have a coughing fit, and I still have to talk about how monumentally screwed we are in the US, so I'll just say... Better that Brazil have a president who's made some dumb equivocations around the Ukraine-Russia situation than a fascist who pretty openly supported Putin. Speaking of election denial, attempts to overturn the vote, and Putin apologia, moving on up to the north. Every single bit of news. The last few weeks out of the United States, at least for those of us who value preserving American democracy more than we do about the masochistic joy of pissing off Whole Foods shoppers, has been bad. Democratic candidates from Arizona to Pennsylvania are not performing as well as we'd hoped. Like a bunch of races that really should have been safe at this point. Okay, if, if the elections were held three months ago, the gubernatorial and Senate races in Arizona should have been in the bag. The ones in Pennsylvania and probably Wisconsin also should have been in the bag. Everything has gone the wrong way. All those that I mentioned are up in the air, including, like, even, like, the New York governor's race, apparently, is suddenly tight. We might lose Oregon, you know, where Portland is. The Senate race in Georgia. My God. Herschel Walker, who I talked about an episode ago, besides being one of the biggest hypocrites we've ever seen in American politics, which is saying something, it just... He's not... He's not all there. He's not well, folks. I don't mean to insult him or make light of mental health issues, but, like, I'm sorry, the guy is not fit to run a Burger King franchise, much less serve in the Senate, but even he appears to be winning now. What the hell? Like, okay, there are... There are individual issues and stuff with the candidates in a number of these races that I could go through, but, again, throat hurts, so gonna stick to the big picture... All of those races that I mentioned, and a number of others, should be going to the Democrats, and would have where the election held two months ago, but everything has just gone in the wrong direction. There's almost no chance at this point that the Democrats hold the House, and with several of the Senate races that I mentioned that we really should be winning where we apparently may not, there's a good chance we lose the Senate too. Losing either the House or the Senate is bad. Losing either one means that any legislative agenda is effectively done for the next two years. This is because 
in today's Republican Party, you, you really can't work toward reasonable compromise with Democrats on a legislative agenda. Democrats are, after all, satanic, pedophile, lizard people who eat their breakfast cereal with the blood of murdered babies, and anything Democrats suggest is automatically regarded as an unacceptable affront to their freedom. If the Democrats, say, attempted to pass a resolution against eating yellow snow, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, and J.D. Vance have declared that not eating yellow snow is part of the woke Democrat beta male plan to emasculate America. The Republican House Judiciary Committee Twitter account would tweet hashtag all snow matters and Kevin McCarthy would post a selfie from Mar-a-Lago with him and Trump eating a dog piss flavored snow cone. Besides the legislative agenda being stalled, if the Republicans take the House, they've already made it clear that their only real plan is basically to start impeaching Biden for random things. If they take the Senate, well, no more judicial appointments. And as fans of a woman's right to choose learned this summer, Republican domination of the courts is bad if you like freedom and having basic rights. Besides damage to the policy agenda if these people win, American democracy, just in general, is in at least as fragile a position right now as Brazil's democracy is. These people winning represents a challenge to American democracy possibly not seen since the Civil War for a number of reasons. Outside just the elections, which I'll get to in a minute, things are just bad. A lunatic Trump supporter last week broke into Nancy Pelosi's house with a hammer where he planned to break her kneecaps. She wasn't there, so instead the guy attacked her husband and tried to kill him, which he survived, but with a fractured skull. A few Republicans, like Mitch McConnell, said the right things with condolences and condemning political violence. They're not going as far as recognizing that some of this might have had to do with Pelosi having been a supervillain in the Fox News cinematic universe for a couple of decades. But most high-profile figures on the right couldn't even manage a measly... Hitting senior citizens over the head with hammers for being Democrats is bad. Instead, they tried to use it to score points on crime, which, again, in the Fox News cinematic universe is all the Democrats' fault. Or they went further still, and spread around conspiracy theories about it, being like a gay hookup gone wrong, because you know those gays with their hammers, I mean... <laughs> Donald Trump Jr. tweeted a picture of underwear and a hammer with some dumb joke about a Halloween costume. Other figures in MAGA world called for someone to pay for the attacker's bail. Naturally, before long, yet another opportunity to be terrible presented itself in the right-wing fever swamp. Turns out this person who attacked Paul Pelosi was an immigrant. So, a chance to reinforce the idea that immigrants are dangerous. Guns don't kill people, Canadians do. One of the people who tweeted out a conspiracy theory about the attack on Paul Pelosi was Elon Musk, because, of course, since buying Twitter, he's decided to make his persona ubiquitous in all of our lives, and apparently to personally embody all of the worst sort of reductionist trolling that Twitter's famous for. I'm trying to think of a sophisticated way of describing what Elon Musk's message is, but it really does seem to be best summed up by... Nyeh, 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 nyeh. I tend to think of myself as just about a free speech absolutist, but it really does seem like the way Elon Musk sees that is to just open the floodgates and make the best online conspiracy theory win. The implications of this for our democracy really don't seem to be very good. Speaking of the democracy of it all, back to the election part, 
Many of the Republican candidates who are now likely to win up and down the ticket are election deniers, people who refuse to accept the results, the results of the last election, and make it pretty clear that in their view, the only legitimate election is one in which they win. Besides being pathetic and petulant and childish and culturally damaging, somebody made the point last week on TV that what does this behavior say to kids? Like this, I didn't lose, infects downward. People not knowing how to lose at this level teaches those paying attention that, you know, if you lost your soccer game, well, you didn't lose. The other team cheated. The refs were biased. It's just yicky culturally over the long term. But also, there are short-term implications of this. For example, as I've discussed in previous episodes, a Republican-controlled House of Representatives could attempt to overturn the next presidential election, meaning that elections nationally kind of just wouldn't be a thing anymore. Republicans elected to positions of authority at the state level could decertify election results, rendering the same result locally. And then, even in advance of messing with elections ex post facto, the Republican running for governor in Wisconsin came straight out and said that if he wins, Republicans will never lose another race in that state. So, he's coming straight out and telling us up front that his goal is to effectively end democracy. How is this happening right in front of our eyes? Which brings me back to the broader question in general. As I mentioned, if the elections were held two or three months ago, they would have looked a whole lot better than they probably will on Tuesday. How has it all gone so wrong? Well, there are a couple of reasons we could go into here. But, and with the caveat that I might be totally wrong and this might go a different way, I don't think it will. And so I will have to just preemptively confess my profound disappointment and frustration with a lot of my fellow American voters. I know everybody's busy. Not everybody's as obsessed with politics as I am, but like, come on. One of our two major political parties has gone completely insane here, and it hasn't been subtle. I know some people will say, yeah, but, you know, well, the left has gone insane too with all of that, like, woke stuff and culture war things, and like, okay, there is some validity to... The, you know, that concern, but like, okay, yeah, some people on the left have embraced stuff that seems a little crazy to a number of people, but the Democratic Party, as a block, has not. Whereas the Republicans running the cycle have openly declared war on the notion that elections are the way that we should decide who gets power in the United States with the very, they've gone to war with the very concept of democracy itself. Their proxies on the Supreme Court just took away a right that has been fundamental for more than half a century. I'm afraid a preview of coming attractions from the Christian theocrats who dominate that court. This, I will say, just as a side note, is a great argument for why our two-party system is dangerous and one of many reasons that I've come to see the advantages of a more multipolar democracy like the one where I live at the moment. In a situation where one of only two parties goes insane and tries to wreck the country, when there's only two choices, the crazy party is going to win sometimes and then maybe wreck the country. When Democrats annoy people by being, as Obama said a couple of weeks ago, buzzkills, there's really only one other place to go. I'm going to leave the multi-party discussion largely for another time here, but, you know, interesting thought. Bottom line, one of our two existing parties is now a clear and present threat to the survival of the American Republic. How... Is this not a bigger issue with voters 
than some short-term economic anxiety and that grainy surveillance footage of a robbery in Portland that Fox News keeps playing on a loop. In the unlikely event that I ever run for office, I understand. What I'm saying here is basically handing a loaded rhetorical gun to my hypothetical opponent with which they will accuse me of being out of touch and demand that I prove otherwise by correctly identifying the current price of a Happy Meal or something. Look, I get it. Things are tough. Inflation is extremely hard and hits everyone to a degree. Historically, it's always been destabilizing. Like, I know it complicates life. Here's the thing, though. It's not the Democrats' fault, and the Republicans are not going to fix it. Okay, first, how do I know that it's not the Democrats' fault that there's inflation right now? Well, every time the government has made a substantial investment in anything over the past half century, fiscal conservatives have screamed that it's going to trigger inflation, and it just hasn't. In this particular case, we happen to be coming out of a global pandemic that first kind of shut everything down for two years and created massive supply issues. And then in the United States, under the stewardship of a democratic government, have had massive job growth and the economy has reheated so fast that now prices have gone up. Also, possibly equally importantly, to the point that this is not merely a Democrats-created problem, inflation is up everywhere. I get that it sucks that prices uh, are 8% higher across the board than they were last year. But guess what? Here in Spain, it's 10%. In this country, which also has a center-left government, it's, it's there at 10%. In France, where they've had a centrist government, it's also pretty high. In Italy, which also had a centrist government until they recently decided they hadn't actually learned their lesson from their first foray into far-right governance with Mussolini a century ago and decided to try it again. Bottom line, they had had a centrist government until recently. Inflation there, super high. In the UK, where they've had various flavors of right-wing government for more than a decade, also inflation at 10%. This is a global phenomenon. Joe Biden is not the president in any of these places and inflation's happening everywhere. This is not happening in the United States because Biden got elected and then snuck into the grocery store and changed all the price tags to mess with you. Second, as I said, Republicans aren't going to fix it. Sure, they love to talk about inflation. Every third tweet from Jim Jordan, who I predict will become Speaker of the House next term when the crazies in the Republican caucus decide that, tre that Kevin McCarthy isn't a true believer and leave his bloody head on a fence post outside the Capitol. Every third tweet from Congressman Jim Jordan is some sort of misleading nonsense about inflation. But what's their plan to fight inflation? He never seems to get to that part. I'm hardly the average American voter. I, mean, I follow politics the way normal people follow sports, and I have no idea what the Republican plan is to fight inflation, so I rather doubt that the average voter who doesn't follow the news all that closely knows what the GOP is planning to do about this issue. Best I can tell, their plan seems to be something something illegal immigrants drag queens critical race theory Hunter Biden's laptop, which is like saying your plan to mow the lawn is to go to Pizza Hut. I get that voters have a lot of economic anxiety right now. But you know what's bad for the economy? Republicans. The American economy is basically one giant multi-year cycle of Republicans take power, do stupid things, then we have a recession. Then Democrats win, 
start taking steps to fix it, but two years later, after the crisis looks like it was over, or at least has left the headlines, the Democrats haven't managed to completely clean up the mess, so Republicans fan the flames of economic and cultural anxiety, win, take credit for the successes resulting from the Democrats' better policies for the first part of their term, and then set about re-messing things up. Rinse and repeat. Oh, and then also crime, Republicans' other go-to scare-the-voters issue. Again, I want to say here that I get it, more needs to be done here. Defund the police was the single worst slogan in modern history, as far as slogans go, but virtually no Democratic candidates actually wanted to defund the police. Most are actually in favor of increasing funding for training police, which Biden has pushed and I believe made happen. And crime is higher in red states than it is in blue states right now. But this is where we arrive at why sick, tired, bad mood Oliver is not feeling very patient with his fellow American voters at the moment. Firstly, because five minutes on Google could tell you what I just did about the actual source of inflation, recent American economic history, and the situation on crime. But polls show that voters trust Republicans way more on those things because the Democrats are barely in power right now, and those things have not been fixed overnight, so it must be the Democrats' fault, right? And secondly, because even if inflation and crime were the Democrats' fault, they aren't, but let's say they were, isn't a little bit of short-term hike in the cost of living a price worth paying to keep having America be a democracy? I mean, maybe I'm just too starry-eyed about the importance of the notion of having governments govern with the consent of a majority of the governed via some form of representative democracy. Churchill did say that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the other ones. I've lived in a democracy almost all my life, but I've spent time in other systems. I have lived in non-democracies. And you know what? I didn't like that when I lived in Thailand, I couldn't say anything negative about the new king, about whom plenty of negative things could be said, without risking serious, like, criminal prosecution. China, already hardly a bastion of freedom and democracy, just made Xi Jinping one of the worst people on Earth. Basically, dictator for life. Do we like that? Democracy. Brazil, the US, Ukraine... Democracy is on the brink here, and once you lose it, it's really not easy to get it back. Oh, and speaking of Ukraine, the Republicans ever-growing pro-Russia caucus in the House has made it pretty clear that when and if they take the House of Representatives, America's support for Ukraine's effort to sustain itself as a democracy in the face of a genocidal invasion by the Russians will grind to a halt. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm going to get proved wrong in a couple of days. Maybe there will be an upset and Americans will decide that the survival of our basic rights as citizens of a free and fair democracy matter more than the short-term problems of higher prices and whatever dumb culture war issue a few fringe members of the Democratic Party may have waded into this time. But it's not looking good. So on that happy note, please go contribute to the critical mission of proving Oliver wrong by going and voting. That's it for this episode of OK Talks. If you're enjoying or at least tolerating the show, please subscribe and leave a review. And most importantly, please share it with other people you think might get something out of it. Be that insights from a different angle on global politics, an audio version of doom scrolling, or background noise that's going on while you wash the dishes. 
Thanks as always to my friend Nate Wright for producing the podcast's artwork and to you for listening. Now, my American listeners, please go vote. Go vote.